listen to this. It's an honor. And I'm glad you're doing what the you know, work that you're doing and, you know, and hosting this podcast. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. I have the great honor and opportunity to talk to Dr. Paul Christo, who is one of the world's leading pain specialists and author of Aches and Gains, a comprehensive guide to overcoming your pain. He is an associate professor in the division of pain medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He served as director of the multidisciplinary pain fellowship program for eight years. And he has been a frequent contributor on NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, PBS television. And he also has got a lot of awards for his work in the field. Paul, if I would read everything you've done, I will run out of time. <laughs> but tell me, <laughs> what are you doing? Who are oh, you? Uh, thanks so much, uh, Karsten. And thanks for having me on, on your podcast. I, you know, It's an honor. There's a lot going on in terms of, I think, the world of treating pain. And, you know, I'm an academic pain doctor and teach residents and teach fellows uh, who are engaged for a year in trying to learn how to diagnose, and, you know, and properly treat pain using uh, medication therapies and using um, interventions, nerve blocks, and even, you know, more innovative techniques that we have uh, spinal stimulator devices or peripheral stimulator devices to reduce pain. Do you have both Johns Hopkins University and Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital? Are they like uh, two different things, or is it the same thing? It's essentially the same thing. I mean, the you, I mean, the Johns Hopkins University is right across the street from the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, and it's a fairly large. The hospital is fairly large. It consists of several different buildings on a on a campus that's adjacent to the medical school. So it's like we we have something in Sweden called Karolinska uh, Institutet, uh, the ones who award the Nobel laureates every year, and then we have the Karolinska Hospital across the street, actually. So maybe it's it's a good parallel. Uh, but I need to yes. ask you something. Uh, I hear a lot of Swedes saying John Hopkins, but I know it's Johns Hopkins. Why why is that? Was there a guy called Johns? Absolutely, that's exactly right. There was the the, uh, the gentleman who is created the institution's first name was John's. You'd think it would be John, but it was John's last name Hopkins. Now we know something new. I will immediately run uh, into a subject I really am burning for. You said that you have a lot of uh, education for fellow residents. The research that I've done uh, for my book, uh, for instance, is that the amount of time spent on pain medicine or pain treatment for in medical school is lousy, to say the least, in Sweden and in Europe. We are talking not days, but hours of education on pain 
medicine or pain treatment. Are you doing this differently at Johns Hopkins, you think? We try to improve that. And that's true in the United States as well. Pain education is fairly poor, unfortunately. Uh, we've tried to expand it to a certain number of days, actually, for uh, medical students. And we have uh, instructional sessions for them, but we also have uh, sort of uh, clinical sessions whereby we present you know, a case of a patient in pain and um, ask medical students how they would approach it. And it's very interactive. And then, you know, we as attendings who lead the sessions will uh, provide suggestions and treatment options for them. I mean, because I think a lot, you know, mo most medical students aren't aware, first of all, that pain is really an epidemic in and of itself. You know, I mean, in the United States, about a third of the population suffers from chronic pain. And that's not insignificant. That's about 100 million people. And I know, you know, in Europe, about 20% of the European population suffers from chronic pain. Uh, so number one, I think we try to create awareness. And then two, we're also revealing what can be done about it. Because I think, you know, I mean, there's just a lack of knowledge about what can be done. And uh, there are many things that can be done, you know, that are medication therapies, as well as the injection therapies, as well as the integrative therapies, you know, the holistic therapies, if you will. Mm. You are an anesthetist. How come you took the step to the gas-free environment and becoming a <laughs> pain doctor? What happened? When I was in my internship year, so, you know, after medical school, I did a year of internal medicine and then followed that with uh, three years of anesthesiology training. But for the anesthesia training, though, uh, during that internal medicine year, we had clinics that we had to attend, and I noticed that a lot of a lot of patients suffered from pain, and uh, boy, I didn't have the tools to help them out. And my, you know, attending doctors, I felt I felt like didn't have an understanding of what could be used to help alleviate their pain and suffering. So I think that really motivated me to want to go on for future training. So it was another year that I did after anesthesia training to do the pain fellowship, to gain that knowledge and to gain those skills to help others uh, who have chronic pain. In Sweden or in Europe, I know that we sometimes talk about interventional therapies like injections and, and blocks and things like that, that they are done much more in the US because of the reimbursement system, that you get more money from an injection than from talking with a psychologist about pain. I sometimes find that quite mean, <laughs> just a way to say that we don't do blocks because it's just earning money. But I've seen blocks helping patients a lot. So what are your thoughts on interventional techniques versus, like you call the holistic view, multidisciplinary, talking with psychologists and trying CBT or ACT, something like that? I think we have good evidence that injections can be helpful. Not all injections, certainly. But for example, I think we have good evidence that, uh, you know, these blocks that we do called medial branch blocks to alleviate low back pain, followed by denervation or radiofrequency ablation, can be effective in treating low back pain for several months. We have good evidence that doing these epidural steroid injections for back pain, shooting leg pain can be helpful. Uh, for several months as well. Uh, even with you know, some of these new devices using small doses of electricity to block pain sensations that travel from the spinal cord to the brain known as spinal cord simulators uh, are effective. That is backed with evidence-based 
um, information that uh, it can be effective in reducing pain. Now, you know, when I say that, I don't mean to imply that these injections and the, these um, interventions are useful for all types of pain. I think, you know, that's where we come in. We're trying to identify those patients that we feel would best benefit from these treatments. The, the neuroblocks, for example, that can be helpful for pain control. Um, but other integrative therapies, you know, holistic therapies, I think can be helpful too. For example, acupuncture, right? I mean, acupuncture is less expensive than maybe say these injections and nerve blocks that we talked about or these implantations. We do have a good evidence base that acupuncture can be helpful uh, for low back pain, for radicular pain, that is pain that shoots from the back down the leg, for migraine headaches, for knee osteoarthritis. And, you know, boy, I, I do send patients and recommend acupuncture for patients as well as some of the, you know, injection therapies. So I think it's important to realize that these integrative therapies are helpful as well, you know, and, and they don't cost as much. Pain psychology as well, you know, evidence-based, that can be helpful for chronic pain conditions. It's just that I feel like in the United States, it's harder to get patients to do these things. You know, it's hard them to, it's hard to get them to, uh, you know, go to eight sessions of acupuncture or, uh, for example, to go to a psychologist for eight to 10 sessions to help manage their pain and change their perception of pain. It's difficult because people want patients you know, who are in pain want something that will help fast. Hmm. It's always easier to get someone else to do something like an intervention. I'm, I, that's probably very human. We had an interesting talk before with a physiotherapist who has 40 years of knowledge in the field of pain working at Karolinska before. We had a very good discussion about acupuncture. If you look at the evidence for or against acupuncture as a pain treatment, it has been going up and down during the years. And because that is also um, somewhat under discussion in Sweden uh, if it's cost effective or not. And we've seen the NICE guidelines in July uh, this year that said that it could be cost uh, effective if it's not more than five hours in total. So some people have worked on that mathematically, really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> To my listeners, this is not coming from someone, you know, just talking about blocks being good. This is actually uh, from Paul Christo, the associate professor from Johns Hopkins, one of the world's best hospitals. So you really need to know what you're doing. You couldn't just do anything because you like it. You need to have the evidence behind it. So that's one of the reasons I really like to have this talk. I, I know that... Um, uh, I couldn't say things that you wouldn't agree on because you would tell me that <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> You're teaching a lot, but you have your own research interests, I understand. I don't know if the webpage is new, but it says that you are interested in aging and pain, for instance. Is that true? It is. Yes, that's one of my interests as well. Talking about aging and pain, is it normal to get pain when you're old? Should we expect that everyone gets pain when they're old and there's nothing to do about it? What do you say? Not necessarily. It's just that, unfortunately, I think you know the prevalence of 
chronic pain increases as we age because we're more prone to conditions like osteoarthritis, for example, you know, uh, all, unfortunately, cancer. And, uh, you know, over 50% of cancer pain, again, sadly, is undermanaged, you know, and not that well controlled. So as we age, you know, we're more, the, the prevalence of some of these chronic pain conditions increases. Another one is what's technically called herpes zoster, right? Shingles. And shingles can develop into a chronic pain condition called post-herpetic neuralgia. Healthy aging, I think, doesn't necessarily imply that we're going to develop chronic pain, fortunately. It's just that at the same time, you know, we have these, the increase in likelihood that we may develop pain as we age. And uh, again, I think that this is something that policymakers I think need to be aware of because we need to make sure that uh, these the older adults are not ignored and the number of older adults across the world is ever increasing you know as the population ages and we live longer due to you know multiple therapies now and, and diet and and advances in medications and medicines my, my own personal uh, observation is that a lot of older persons having pain are not actually getting well treated because everyone is afraid of giving them medicine they start with a low dose but they are afraid to increase it so they never get to know if the dose works or not because they're old so they shouldn't get medication and i usually say that you have to decide uh, either to you know let go of the medication or increase it you can't just have a dose uh, that doesn't work what your opinion on, on medication for the elderly? Is it something that can be done in pain or are they so vulnerable so you can't really medicate them well enough? I think that's a fear. And the fear is that, yes, that you might overdose older adults you know, with medications. And that has led to poorly controlled pain, I think, on their part. You can increase the doses and you can do it gradually. And, you know, the... NSAIDs, that is the, non, the anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen, for example, can be used. Now, you have to be careful because, you know, as we age, our kidney function decreases. Also, we've got changes in the uh, hepatic, our hepatic function, so our ability to metabolize drugs can change. Plus, we can get, we might have ongoing medical illnesses. Uh, so, you know, those drugs can be used and increased gradually. We also have you know, other, you could, you know, acetaminophen is something that I think is probably also quite safe, yet underdosed, because there's a fear that it's going to lead to liver toxicity. You know, if the dose is too high, we've seen more information in the literature about liver toxicity associated with acetaminophen. But the reality is that most of the evidence indicates that older adults can use doses up to three, four grams per day. Hmm. That's very good advice, that you should at least try the medication. If it doesn't work, you should taper it down, of course. But if it works, why not keep with it? Better than having a low dose doing nothing. Well, it's true. And, you know, frankly, the other thing, Karsten, is that uh, with respect to, say, one of the major causes of chronic pain, osteoarthritis, we have more topical agents now. And you probably in Sweden have this available too, right? We have um, diclofenac gel. Is that available in Sweden? Mm, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, so, you know, instead of using something by mouth, then we can try uh, topical medications to see if they can help. And we certainly have data that indicate that uh, topical diclofenac on osteoarthritic joints can be helpful. And it's safer because less of it gets into the bloodstream. 
How do you consider yourself being received by your fellow physicians? Do they understand that you have a very important role or are you kind of something the cat dragged in? (laughs) (laughs) I'm of course asking that because I've seen it so many times that the pain doctor is someone that they call when they tried everything else and they don't know what to do. And so now someone has to take care of it. And I know Johns Hopkins is a great hospital, and I know that you wouldn't say something bad about your own hospital, but you can probably address this in a very diplomatic way. I think that we are, as pain specialists, quite valued, to be honest with you. I think that it's become uh, our presence in the United States as pain specialists, I think, is, is strong at this point. And I think that the expertise that we bring is valued, certainly where I work. And, you know, we've got... And it spans not just sort of uh, the non-cancer pain realm, right, which would be, say, the low back pain, neck pain, nerve pain, headaches, but cancer pain, too. So usually that's something within the purview of oncologists. I think here we have a good relationship with the oncologists, and they'll consult us if they feel like patients are in need of some of these injection therapies that we referred to before, others, or even the implantation of pain pumps, for the alleviation of intractable cancer pain. And then to to something that might not be as uh, positive to talk about, but very important, it's what we call the opioid crisis in the US. We've all heard about that. What are your thoughts about that crisis in respect to pain treatment? Well, to a certain extent, they go hand in hand. You know, pain is poorly controlled in the United States. And, and frankly, I think it's poorly controlled across the world. And that's why I'm glad you're doing what the work that you're doing and, you know, and hosting this podcast so that we can create a greater awareness of the problem and that it exists. Uh, in the United States, in the 1990s, say the mid-1990s, we, what happened was that uh, we started reading in the literature you know, about the value of opioids for non-cancer pain. And the private practitioners and, you know, some pain specialists as well, I think started using opioids as a first line medication, when in fact it shouldn't be, and it shouldn't have been at that time, and it, and it shouldn't be today. I think it was done in good faith, because, you know, boy, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, we have a third of the U.S. population suffering from chronic pain, and 20% of the European population. And, and by the way, worldwide, the number who suffer from chronic pain is somewhere around the lines of 1.5 billion people. So, you know, so we're really, we're talking about a major problem. And at that time in the 1990s uh, in the United States, we had more evidence that opioids were useful for non-cancer pain. So they were being used more than they should have been and in people that they shouldn't have been used in, right? Those people who were vulnerable to abuse. And so I think in part, that's what led to the opioid crisis. One, one note here, though, about the opioid crisis is that, that I think is lost is that a lot of people who unfortunately overdosed on opioids were not just overdosing on a single opioid. Look, we do have research and evidence that, that tells us that a lot of those people who were unfortunately dying from opioid overdose were also dying because of other substances they were using at the same time. Alcohol, for example, 
benzodiazepines, drugs like Valium, at the same time they were using an opioid. There are some confounders in the research about the opioid crisis. Definitely. And, and today what we're seeing here is I, I think we're not seeing pain patients who are on opioids overdose and die. Over the last several years, unfortunately, we're seeing the recreational use of synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And, and that's leading to the deaths that we're seeing, gosh, you know, in, in, in ever growing ways. Jumping to something more positive now then, uh, you probably heard about the Nobel laureates this year that actually had some kind of connection with pain uh, this time. And, and you coming from Johns Hopkins having 29 Nobel laureates connected to the Johns Hopkins University, talked about the receptors of nerve pain, so to speak. Do you have any comments on the Nobel Prize this year? Was it good for the pain field or won't it show anywhere? I think it's a step in the right direction, for sure. There's a quest for non-opioid therapies now, right? Medications that don't bind to these opioid receptors that can lead to addiction. So, you know, we there are investigations in drugs that bind to other receptors in the body to relieve pain that are not addictive. And that's key because, I mean, we've suffered the devastation of, of using opioids in ways that, well, that probably shouldn't have been used. So I think there's a quest, there's an interest in therapies that will not lead patients down that path of abuse and addiction. So when you see the future of pain research, pain medicine, pain education, pain knowledge, what do you see? I think it's exciting. I, I think that uh, we're going to see medications that bind to non-opioid targets. Uh, I think we're going to see more non, you know, non-pharmacological management of pain. That is, using um, some of the devices that we talked about, you know, stimulation devices that can help reduce nerve pain. Um, I think we're going to see agents that help reverse opioid overdoses that haven't been discovered before. Uh, we're going to, I think, also use more integrative therapies. For example, I've done some work on the use of auricular, that is ear acupressure for, for the reduction of pain. So I think we're trying to investigate other mechanisms, other ways that we can target the body's systems for pain reduction that is safe. Hmm. Do you think the importance of uh, pain treatment and the funds for education is that uh, independent of what your government says or, or does it depend on, on which president is in charge or, or is it l like a, a train going in the right direction steadily? Yes, it does depend on who the president is. Uh, sadly, I think that funding for pain research is abysmally low. You know, it's just it's very low in the United States. I think that there are, though, efforts to improve that. And because, frankly, of the opioid crisis that we're seeing in the United States and, you know, many underpinnings of the opioid crisis rest on chronic, having chronic pain and poorly controlled pain. So I think there's a greater view now that, boy, you know, we, we need to pour some more money into investigating new ways to reduce pain that are safe. The education for medical students, how, how long is their education in the U.S.? Well, th their education is four years. So it's four years at the university followed by four years of medical school.
and then depending on what they choose for a specialty it it's typically several years after that okay so eight years before they That's choose right. speciality okay so during those first eight years uh, how much time do you think is uh, given for pain education in the u.s in medical school uh i mean it's probably on average <laughs> Uh, maybe just several hours, frankly, on average mm. of pain education. So it's we're lacking in that area. Mm. Johns Hopkins is such a well-known and excellent hospital. How did you become so successful? Well, I, I think that uh, over time, the hospital, the university has focused on research and on innovation and investigations. And I, I think that that has led uh, to a lot of funding basically, in all areas of medicine. And they've been able to recruit uh, dedicated, hardworking, and, and bright physicians and PhDs, uh, as, and also, I think, quite compassionate physicians who care about their patients and, and trying to get them better. Mm. So research, innovation, and, and thereby getting funding. So it's not only production. It's uh, Research is very, very important in this field as well. I, I imagine. How does your personal future look uh, regarding pain? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think bright. I, I uh, you know, I'm continuing to see uh, patients who have pain to do my best to ease uh, their pain and suffering. Also to teach uh, trainees, you know, doctor trainees, residents, fellows in the area of pain and pain control, and, and then. At the same time, I, you know, I host uh, my own radio show on overcoming pain in the United States called Aches and Gains, similar to the title of my book. Uh, it's a national radio show. And uh, gosh, I've done that for about 10 years now to raise awareness of what we're just what we're talking about today. And I have compelling guests, people like you and I, you know, everyday people who've overcome their pain conditions, as well as expert guests and authors, celebrities and so on to talk about how they've gotten through their pain. It doesn't mean that they've necessarily reduce their pain by 100%, but it does mean that they've moved beyond it to do those things in life that make it worth living. Mm. You work at the pain clinic. How does that pain clinic look? Who are working there? Uh, well, we have several uh, pain specialists who work in the clinic on different days of the week. We have residents there. We have uh, fellows there that are in training for pain. We have nurses and uh, fluoroscopists and so on. So we have, it's, it's sort of a full, complete center for those who are suffering from pain. And, and which specialities are the doctors working at the pain clinic? Well, all of us currently are anesthesiologists at other centers. So, you know, Johns Hopkins has sort of ancillary sites and uh, there we have physiatrists and PM&R specialists who are treating patients in pain as well. And then we have psychologists. We have some, you know, pain psychologists at the hospital that we can send patients to for cognitive behavioral therapy, which which is helpful. And then we have physical therapists here. And we have uh, acupuncturists as well. So we really try to integrate different elements of pain control. The Johns Hopkins is situated in Baltimore, right? That's right. Yeah. Do do you take patients with pain from the Baltimore area or do you take patients from the whole of United States or what does it look like? 
Mainly from the Baltimore region, Baltimore, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, Delaware, but then also from around the country and even other parts of the world. I must uh, tell you a, a story about a patient I had who had a very uncommon condition and uh, actually uh, another hospital here said that nothing could be done. She didn't believe that <laughs> so, and she asked me uh, what I thought and I said that well maybe you should talk to someone who meets a lot more patients. We really need to realize that Sweden is a small country. And even if someone in Sweden says that you can't do better than this, uh, they have not seen as many patients as they have done in the States or in Germany or Great Britain. This patient went to the US, was some kind of joint venture with uh, Johns Hopkins. She actually had to sell everything she owned here uh, and she, pay that to uh, your hospital. She got surgery, intensive care, and now she's pain-free. People here said could not be done, but it could be done. And of course, there are some unspecific effects, I guess, paying so much, going to the best hospital in the world. Uh, but still, I'm uh, very, very impressed by the work you did. You're not just show, you actually do things that work very well for patients. But please, dear listener, don't sell everything you have and go to Johns Hopkins. That's not <laughs> what we're saying, right? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So tell me, when you're not working as a physician, what do you do? Do you have time for anything else? I guess you have to recharge your batteries as well. I do. So I, uh, well, I have certainly I'm busy with my family. I've got a couple of kids. They're involved in sports, certainly. And those sporting, you know, one plays tennis, one swims. So, you know. Between uh, driving them to tennis matches and then uh, also, you know, swim meets, it's pretty busy. Plus, they have homework. Uh, I do like to play some tennis myself. I try to exercise as much as I can during the weekdays. And uh, I like um, to play music. Many years ago, I played the organ, the pipe organ. I haven't done that in, in I don't know how long now, but that was sort of a passion of mine as well. Something that I'd like to do, you know, in the future once things ease up in terms of the workload. Mm. Now you have something to look forward to, really. I do. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is really important that the, I should have asked about pain or something that uh, you think was misunderstood? I, I always ask this question when I talk to my patients uh, and I ask all my guests in the pod, please tell me, Paul, if there's anything that you think we missed out on. I would just say that, that there is hope. There's hope for those who suffer from pain that it can get better. We have treatments that can ease pain and suffering. They may be nerve blocks. They could be injection therapies, stimulator devices. We have the integrative therapies where that we talked about today, you know, acupuncture, physical therapy, even things like hypnosis might be helpful too. And, and then um, we have more innovative therapies that are on the horizon, you know, and that I think that, that are quite exciting, you know, non-opioid therapies that can reduce pain. Uh, other interventional procedures that can help ease pain and suffering. So I think there's a lot of hope and I, and I just want to tell everybody not to give up. Mm, that's some great uh, conclusive words there. Paul, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so happy that uh, pain actually has a, a very strong position at your hospital. And uh, 
I'm happy that you see bright on the future, really. I'm, I'm happy and that you are a big and thriving uh, pain clinic at your hospital. Uh, also very, very nice. So thank you very much. Uh, until later, maybe. That sounds great. Thank you. Thank you.